Okay, great. So I'm going to do an intro and doing an intro in front of a, a pro is just, I'm just going to, I won't cl actually close my eyes because I have to read it, but, uh, and then we'll just get into the conversation uh, from there. Okay. Are we, we're all ready. Okay, here we go. Welcome back to Blazing Trails. I'm your host, Michael Rebo from Salesforce Studios. And my guest today is CNBC senior media and tech reporter and former fortune writer, Julia Borston. She's here to talk about her upcoming book, Why Women Lead, What They Achieve, Why They Succeed, and How We Can Learn From Them. Welcome to the show, Julia. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you so much. Well, it turns out that my daughter's name is Julia, too. So it's another another Julia. And uh, I read when I was prepping for the interview that when you were 13, your mother told you that by the time you grew up, women could be just as powerful as men, captains of industry, running the biggest companies. But we see that the gender gaps have not closed as much as you and your mom had hoped. And so my Julia is actually 13 right now. <laughs> and uh, are, are we going to be talking about a different story in a couple decades with her? I want you to be able to tell the same thing to her that my mom told me. But this time I want you to be right. Yeah. My mom told me that the gender gaps would have closed by the time I grew up. But I unfortunately saw the harsh reality that. Uh, women are vastly underrepresented in so many powerful positions, particularly in business. And I hope that you can tell your Julia that 10, 15, 20 years from now, gender gaps will have closed a lot more quickly than the pace of change in the past 20 years. Well, I mean, that's really what the book is is all about is, you know, how and why women are building such strong companies and, and what's happening there. You know, the book focuses a lot on startups and i just i wanted to start there about how you kind of chose that area to start to tell this story so i've been a reporter at cnbc for 16 years now i was at at fortune magazine before that and i've interviewed so many different amazing ceos including mark benioff um, who is such an inspiration and by the way he plays into a lot of the the lessons in this book because i think he leads with a lot of the characteristics i write about but one thing that struck me is there are certain fields where women face the biggest challenges and have the least representation. And just to put this in context, um, women represent about 8% of the CEOs of the Fortune 500. So we're talking about the 500 most powerful companies, women are 8%. Yeah. But there is a statistic that to me is the most shocking. And that is that last year women got female founded companies drew 2% of all venture capital dollars. Mm -hmm. Companies with co and in general, just looking back over the past 10 years to make it clear, this is not just a one year aberration. On average, over the past 10 years, women have drawn 3% of venture capital dollars. Mm -hmm. So that statistic to me was so shocking. And the fact that it wasn't changing over a decade said to me that this is an area that is really hard for women. Mm -hmm. And what struck me is the women who've been able to succeed despite those odds are by definition exceptional. They have, they are exceptions to the rule. And I figured the, those women must have amazing lessons that we can all benefit from. So I wanted to look through the lens of an area where um, the odds were the hardest and the bars were maybe the highest, and maybe there were the toughest sort of institutional challenges to change. You know, if you look at public companies, there are external pressures that force public companies to change. And there is a drive towards transparency. Right. I mean, if you look at Wall Street, Wall Street has become a lot more diverse in the last couple of decades. And that's in part because they are reporting their numbers. The tech companies have started to report their numbers, the tech giants. And I think transparency, 
drives change. You know, if the numbers look really bad, you're more likely to change them. But the the venture capital industry is just um, so opaque and so private in terms of LPs put in money, then they invest, the timeline is 10 years. I just thought this, this is an industry that has been really resistant to change. And if I could tell the stories of these amazing women, then there are going to be some broader stories uh, and lessons to learn as well. Yeah. And you write that because of the risks in investing and startup ideas and those risks are so great that VCs rely heavily on affinity and social connections to make their decisions. And I, I think that goes beyond that world. Maybe that's it's more heightened there. But is that something that you see as, as, a, as a big thing to overcome in terms of how these decisions are made? Absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, one thing that's important is I'm not blaming anyone for the fact that there are gender gaps. I'm not pointing fingers and saying this is all the fault of a small group of people. And in fact, I think a lot of the issues are very much structural and not malicious. Mm -hmm. I don't think that the the source of gender um, gaps are malice. I think it's the, you know, simple fact of pattern matching. And when stakes are really high and when investors want to minimize their risk, They want two things. Number one, a founder who reminds them of other founders who have succeeded in the past. They're looking for a pattern. They want to invest in the successful pattern. That's Mm -hmm. natural, right? That's not malice. But if you're looking for someone who looks like Mark Zuckerberg or even, you know, looks like Brian Chesky, the founder of Airbnb, you're going for a type that excludes a lot of other people. So there's that. And then also investors are going to make a couple of bets and they want to want to spend time with people who um, they're going to be building companies with and, and backing. And so that that means there's a tendency to invest in people who are kind of like yourself. So mm-hmm. there are some crazy stats in the book about the percentage of VC investors who are not only white men, but are white men who went to Harvard and Stanford and MIT. Right. So it's just a pretty narrow group that doesn't change a lot because these companies have, you know, in VC funds have 10-year timelines and they have new funds and there isn't really new influx of of people or ways of structuring them. Yeah. Well, I'd love to get into some of the takeaways and some of what you've learned in interviewing more than 120 women and some men, I I must say. Uh, What were some of the key uh, takeaways that you saw in terms of what made them successful, the qualities of these women? I went in assuming that I was going to find out that these women were sort of straight out of the gate leaders, straight out of the gate from the time they were in elementary school running lemonade stands. They knew what they wanted to do. They were driven. They were focused. They had it all figured out. And the reality was totally the opposite of that. Each one of these women, um, and they did lead in very different ways, they pushed themselves to improve, not just in terms of their business, but as leaders. And I think there's a very optimistic and, and, and positive takeaway there in that no one is, is, you know, speaking of Silicon Valley, no one emerges from a garage with a fully formed idea knowing how to run a company. Um, and the, the leaders who are most successful are the ones who are most self-critical. And I talk a lot about how there is um, a lot of correlation between being an athlete, particularly a female athlete, and being a successful executive. Mm-hmm. I was not an athlete myself, but I thought, okay, well, how can I learn from this? Yeah. And a lot of that is not about your ability to compete as a team against someone else. That is not true at all. The reason why athletes are successful is they are able to do what they call after-event reviews, mm-hmm. figure out what their mistakes were and how to use that information to improve. It's all about creating your own benchmarks and pushing yourself to improve against your own goals. Mm -hmm. And that is something that people learn from athletics. And you can also learn it even if you never were lucky enough to serve, you know, play on a basketball team in high school. So I think this, I, the one big takeaway is everyone 
can and does push themselves to improve if they're going to succeed. And the other thing is that there's just no one way to be a good leader. I was really struck by the fact that there were some women I interviewed who are amazing CEOs and they are introverts. Introversion is not a characteristic traditionally associated with good leadership, but these women like Shanlin Ma, the CEO of Zola, or Jennifer uh, Holmgren, she's the CEO of a biotech company called Lanza Tech that turns pollution into fuel, which sounds like magic to me, but it's an amazing company. Both of them are self-professed introverts. And they talked about how they were able to figure out how to use that natural characteristic um, to their advantage because they didn't like getting out there and speaking in front of crowds. So how could they figure out how to use their preference to listen rather than speak to maybe draw the better ideas of a group? So for instance, Shanlin Ma talks about how she knew that her own instinct to not want to speak up could be something that other people on her team were experiencing as well. So she created a, stru- a structure to meetings where everyone would effectively vote on what they thought before the meeting began. So people wouldn't join a meeting and have the introverts feel like, you know, why bother speaking up? The guy with the loudest voice is gonna steamroll everyone, so I shouldn't even bother sharing my perspective. So she effectively created structures to allow everyone to share their opinion, no matter how introverted or extroverted they were. And so that's a great way to drive communal leadership. And it turned out to be a huge advantage that she doesn't like to dominate the conversation in meetings. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I mean, what are some of the qualities? Because I know without getting into gender stereotypes, of course, some of the qualities that are more particular to women or that, you know, women are socialized to have that actually are really great skills in terms of leadership and building successful organizations. Yeah. So for instance, women are more likely to lead in a communal way. So rather than top-down leadership, leading in a communal way, like what I just mentioned about Shanlin Ma, bringing in opinions from people across an organization, Mm -hmm. um, that is characteristically something women are more likely to do. But there's some interesting data, say, around leading with gratitude. There's some data showing that women like the feeling of feeling grateful. That's something that they enjoy. For men, it makes them a little bit more uncomfortable. It's something that men are less, um, not less familiar with, but less likely to enjoy. But in fact, leading with gratitude has all sorts of amazing outcomes. And this actually ties into Mark Benioff, because I think he leads with gratitude. If you have a feeling of gratitude, you're more likely to prioritize long-term outcomes. So I talk about um, Julia Collins, who is the former CEO of Zoom, which was a robotic pizza company, which sort of spoke to the bubble. Now she has a company called Planet Forward that is working on regenerative agriculture. And so she feels this amazing sense of gratitude to her family, to the fact that she's had all these amazing experiences that have put her in a place and an opportunity to solve some of these climate issues that are so pressing. Because she's leading with such massive gratitude in her mind at all times, she's planning for a hundred year future. She wants her business to have an impact over a hundred years. And there's this data that connects gratitude. If you you give someone um, an experience where they're supposed to practice gratitude, write about something they're grateful for, they're more likely to make longer term decisions. Um, And there's some fascinating studies about this. Fantastic. Did I did I lose my picture here? I did on yes. my side. I just kept talking. I no, know. that's good. I'm glad. Um, so I'm not sure quite what's happening there. Uh, if we can't get it back, that's fine. We can. Is your webcam it. unplugged? No, I've got a camera that's uh, that's going into. I've got like a fancy setup here that um, seems to have been a little too fancy. Maybe. <laughs> I always unplug and replug. That's my strategy. <laughs> Uh, okay. 
Let me try. Okay, sorry about this, Julia. A little technical okay. difficulty here. My gonna... answer on the last one was kind of rambly. I'm happy to redo it. Okay. Let's see here. All right, I'm going to try to unplug it. Oops. The highly technical solution of unplugging and replugging. Or when people tell me to power cycle, which just means turn on. Turn it off and turn it back on again. Yeah, I'm like, that's not, if, if the IT guys tell me that, I always am like, okay, this is why I need to go back in the office. Okay, let me see. Yeah, and then come back. Sorry, everybody. Um, it'll be okay, and it'll be the same link, JP. Okay, let me get this. Okay. Okay. Great. <laughs> oh my goodness. Okay. Um, so we were talking about... Do you want me to retell the story about gratitude? Because I feel like I was kind of rambling. Yeah. And I, I had had... I can actually lead into this question again, um, which was... Um, let me just grab some notes here. Um, okay. Uh, here we go. You know, so Julia, part of what's in the book is about how women succeed because of the unique skills that they have. Can you tell me about some of those skills that, that you found in the process of writing the book? Yes. I mean, I think, you know, there's this image of, of, uh, of leadership that it's supposed to be just one thing. And I found that there were a variety of different ways I was seeing women lead with great success. And a lot of that was just about leaning into their natural strengths and finding ways to use things, whether it's, you know, for instance, a, a tendency to be an introvert or um, feeling a great sense of gratitude or leaning into vulnerability to use these things that don't seem like they're about strengths as these incredibly powerful tools for leadership. Um, so I, I mentioned earlier this idea of communal leadership, the power of going down to the people on the ground and bringing in ideas from across an organization. That's something women are more likely to, to do. It's really an alternative to the authoritative top-down leadership that we um, talk about sort of as a traditional leadership style. Uh -huh. um, there's a lot of data about how leaning with vulnerability is incredibly valuable. This idea of having humility when um, making decisions. And there's a lot of data about how in times of crisis in particular, female leaders are better at being highly adaptable. You know, they talk about the adaptability quotient, making swift decisions based on data and not getting stuck uh, stuck with plans that are already in place. Because often it's time to ditch a plan that's been in the works for a long time. So what I think is so essential here is that these aren't characteristics that only women use, but that women may be more traditionally 
um, likely to use these approaches, but in fact, that when men use these approaches, they can be incredibly um, powerful approaches too. But these, the ways I'm talking about leading, whether it's gratitude or vulnerability, these are not things that are you know, seen as powerful traits, but I guess my perspective is, having seen them in action among all these women is, actually showing vulnerability, being humble, that's how you succeed. Mm-hmm. You know, and it seems like there's a, a depth of confidence that, in that, with the ability to do that uh, and to be outside yourself enough and to look at those situations to, uh, to get rid of some of the ego and, and make better decisions. And it, and it seems to prove out in the numbers with, I, I know in the book, and maybe you can share some of the success of, of, uh, of companies that are led by women that seem to be doing a little better than the men sometimes. Absolutely. I mean, what was so amazing is I started off this book wanting to tell the stories of these amazing women. And then the more I dug into their stories, the more I wanted to find the data, the research. And this is, you know, goes back to my my student days of like wanting to dig into the real academic research, explaining why their strategies worked and also finding data about whether or not they were actually doing better. And it's it's amazing to look at the numbers and there are rate. I mean, there are probably about 100 studies included in my book. I read about 300 different academic studies um, as part of the reporting process. Mm-hmm. And various studies have found that female founders do more with less. And by that, I mean, they're more likely to generate higher returns with lower upcut, uh, upfront investment. They are also likely to return capital to their investors sooner. Um, so sometimes it's good to wait a decade or more for a moonshot outcome, but oftentimes it's great to have um, have an, a, a sooner return on your investment and, and to know that there is, um, you know, there's a, a positive uh, financial outcome there. So some amazing data about this idea that maybe it's not a valuable all the time to just be swinging for the fences and going for the moonshots, but women have incredible outcomes even though they have less access to capital. Mm-hmm. You know, and you write about the difference between kind of fixed mindset and growth mindset. And I think that this relates to what we were talking to and how women may approach situations or problems differently and, and how those mindsets, whether fixed or growth, play out between genders and, and how that changes over time. Can you talk about that a little bit? I mean, look, I love talking about a growth mindset. I, I have two kids and I talk about it all the time with them. But yeah. there's so much data about how... Um, how a growth mindset is incredibly valuable, um, not just for kids, but professionally. And I think that a balance of self-confidence and humility is what enables a growth mindset. I mean, it makes sense. If you're humble, then you know you can learn. And if you have a growth mind, you know, and if you're if you're self-confident, you know you can push yourself to improve. Um, I also think it's important to look at how a growth mindset can be used across a company, both in um, the way a company operates, but also in hiring. And there's some good data in the book about the importance of using a growth mindset for hiring and not hiring just based on resumes, which uh, a resume is more of a reflection of what opportunities you had and what kind of a background you grew up in and um, hiring based on um, ability instead. And this idea of one of the VCs I interviewed talk about talked about looking at someone's distance traveled and she doesn't want to hire someone or invest in a company based on whether they went to Harvard or Stanford, but based on how far they've come. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's amazing data about how if you have a growth mindset, you have more brain activity after you've made a mistake. Um, you know, if you have a growth mindset, you're more likely to bring in I- ideas from across an organization because you're not only stuck 
on your um, your fixed ideas that you've already had. So, um, so I just think growth mindset is so essential to really imbue across an organization. And so, break down the difference between a fixed mindset and a growth mindset. What what what, what are the differences? So a fixed mindset is the idea that, you know, you are who you are, you're good at what you're good at, and that's kind of about it. But a growth mindset is the idea that you can change and evolve over time. Um, and and that you're, you're through effort and experience, you can change what it is that you're capable of. So there's an amazing study um, I include in the book and, and actually ties into parenting. Um, for many years, researchers found that girls were more likely to have a fixed mindset and boys had a growth mindset. And that was because the teachers were struggling so hard to get the kids to sit down, the boys to sit down, that they'd say, you're so smart, you can do anything. As as long as you put your mind to to it and sit down and get to work, you'll do great in class. Where the girls, they'd say, you're going to do this because you're good at this, you're good at math, but they didn't have the idea, well, you can learn anything if you try your hardest. But ultimately, a growth mindset is this idea that if you try your hardest, you can do anything you set your mind to. So there is a study, and this, you know, there is a study, and this ties into sort of the evolution of, of parenting over time, about how, um, about whether or not this, what they call the bright girl effect, persisted into adulthood. And the, the original professor who did the research on this bright girl effect of telling girls that their, their abilities were fixed and boys that their uh that they could do anything went back after time and found that there was not a a bright woman effect and in fact that women um old the older women get the more they tend to have growth mindsets Mm -hmm. and uh and there's this idea that as you get older the idea that you could keep on learning and changing and evolving is incredibly powerful um and so it was reassuring to see that women have kind of what they call an improving outlook as opposed to a proving outlook. Um, so I love the idea that as women get older, they more and more embrace this idea that they can evolve and change. It's so interesting. And and why do you think it is that, that women sort of continue with that growth mindset or it it grows as, as they get older? Well, you know, there's a fascinating study about confidence, men and women and confidence. And it, it's found that when men and women graduate college, men have much higher confidence than women do. Women have much lower confidence. And then as they get older, and I wish I could show you this on a sort of a graph, but men's confidence declines, like going down on a chart, and women's confidence increases with age. Mm -hmm. And then around age 40, the confidence lines intersect. It's like an X on the chart, right? So, um, So what's so interesting about this is that women's confidence increases with experience, and men's confidence decreases as they see what their you know actual abilities are in the world so i think what that shows is that women start off perhaps you know unconfident because they have no experience in in the working world and maybe men start off too confident um but as time goes on women see that they have so much to offer and they gain confidence and it seems to me like you know I, i make a joke in the book about how it's not um you know it's not youth that's wasted on the young it's confidence because men are more confident than they should be and they realize that as they get older so i think just correlating confidence with experience makes sense it makes sense and as you gain that confidence with your experience you think hey if i do set my mind to do anything i can mm-hmm, mm-hmm. you know i think it's a great message for women who are younger in their career to not be overconfident, but to know that that can come in time 
Because it seems like if, if you don't have that confidence early, you might miss some of those opportunities and not push as hard and, and then not have the opportunity as you get older to take advantage of that confidence. Is that, is that something that, that you see? Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, look, confidence and humility, these things are complicated and yeah. also nuanced. Yeah. Um, there's a great, speaking of confidence, though, there's this uh, uh, amazing research about the value of female board members. Mm -hmm. And they found that during the financial crisis, um, companies with women in the, in the boardroom made better investment acquisition decisions and also had less aggressive risk taking. And they found that female board members helped temper the overconfidence of male CEOs and push them to be more rational. Mm -hmm. So you want to be confident enough to execute, but not so confident that you're making risky, dumb decisions. Um, and all of this you know, research on confidence and humility and correlating confidence with experience, all of this, it ties into this idea um, that one social scientist wrote about that I quote in the book. And that's the idea that confidence can and should be on a dial. And what I mean by that is, is that if we can turn up and down our confidence, then we will be more successful. Um, and this, this uh, professor writes about the value of turning down your confidence when you're trying to make a decision, because you should be gathering perspectives and opinions from across your organization, from people outside your organization. And if, you, if you're overly confident when you're doing that, you're not gonna be successful. You need to be able to turn down your confidence to effectively do that. Then once you've gathered all that data, thrown your own assumptions out the window, then that's when you should turn up your confidence to execute and to communicate about the decision you've made. So that's why I think all this research about confidence is so interesting. It is, and when, when, you, know, when you think about uh, other pursuits, so for example, you're building a bridge and it's an engineering project or you're doing a, a science, I, I, there are bold decisions that go out, but through the process, you're really using data. You're looking at that. You know, hopefully, the people that are working on that are using a more tempered approach. To, to that, and that's why there's so much research in this book about the value of relying on data over ego. Yeah. And there's some research that women are more likely, especially in heightened times of crisis when things are stressful, women are more likely to make decisions based on on data. Um, and it all comes down to data, right? Data indicates that more diverse teams perform better. That's why I'm ultimately optimistic that um, that the business world will slowly march towards diversity because it's simply the more effective thing to do financially. Yeah, and you know, we've been having this conversation uh, for so long. Uh, part of the question for me is, you know, how can we accelerate this? Well, you know what, the, the pace of change is so slow. The data is here, it's clear. It's, you know, this is, it's a winning formula. What's the holdup? Well, look, there are so many different pieces to this. There's hiring, there's retention, there's promotion. I actually think that Salesforce has really been a leader at this in terms of the corporate world, mm -hmm. um, you know, making sure that you're not just paying people equitably, but also promoting them equitably. And I remember interviewing uh, Mark Benioff years ago about his work to figure out why there wasn't necessarily a pay gap, but what, that there was a promotion gap and how yeah. to, um, to, to equalize that. Mm -hmm. So I think the big companies have to put their money where their mouth is, like Salesforce has been doing. Um, and then I also think it's just recruiting and hiring at every level of the funnel. Um, I actually interviewed um, Benioff um, on stage at the Grace Hopper Forum, which is a conference mm -hmm. for young women in technology. These are you know women who are graduating college. And I think companies need to not only 
make an effort to recruit, but also understand how to pull out the bias and the, and the pattern matching from their own hiring processes. And I actually, in the book, write about some of the companies that are helping do just that. These are tech tools that are helping to move companies away from reliance on the resume. The resume is an outdated way of hiring people because it actually gives you no indication of whether or not someone's going to be good at a job, mm-hmm. um, just what experiences they've had and what um, perhaps privilege they've had in terms of enabling those experiences. So I think the technology, the better the technology gets, the more accurate data gets, the better we'll be able to use all of that information to strip out stereotype and bias um, and really move towards a data-driven future where people are hired based on their potential, back to the growth mindset, you know, use a growth mindset in hiring. And, um, and ultimately, whether it's boards or um, the C-suite or the engineering, um, you know, the engineering employees at a company, diversity is so valuable because you're going to better speak to customers who are, they don't look like the white men who for so long dominated, um, dominated the C-suite of every company. You write about this idea called the conformity bar. Uh, can you describe what that is and how it impacts hiring, decision making, etc.? Um, or the, the, yes, yeah, so, so there's all sorts of different double standards here. So there's um, the 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 confirmatory. So I'm I'm, I'm pronounced the confirmatory standard. Yes. So there's this idea of double standards that men and women have, and people who are in minority groups. If you're not used to seeing someone in a certain role. Um, they might surprise you with what I call the, what, what they call the minimum standard. This is what I call the pleasant surprise. So the wow, she's not incompetent threshold. So because women are not represented in leadership or people of color are not represented in leadership, they might meet a minimum standard more easily um, than, uh, than say someone who fits a traditional stereotype. But then there's this other standard at the other side of the bell curve, and that's called the confirmatory standard. That is the standard that someone must reach to convince others that he or she can possess a certain trait. So to convince, for a woman to convince um, a board that she is able of holding, a, a, you, know, you know, able to hold a CEO role, she has to meet this confirmatory standard. And it's right. much higher for women than it is for men. So women have to consistently defy the stereotype that they're less competent in business in order to reach that confirmatory standard. Um, but for men, um, because they fit the stereotype, it's not as hard. This is really what double standards are about. Right, right. And you know, and there's, you, you write a little bit about uh, some of the opportunities that women get in CEO roles where it's kind of the last resort or the, you know, the company is not doing well and so, you know, that you have to enter these really challenging situations. Is, you think that's changing or is that still? Yeah. So what you're referring to is this idea of a glass cliff. You know, we talk about the ceiling, but I think that the glass cliff image is so powerful because mm-hmm. a glass cliff is the idea that women are more likely to be given a big role, a ton of responsibility, say running a company when their chance of failure is high. So a company is struggling. We're in the middle of a crisis. The board is, says, okay, let's give the woman who's number two or three on the totem pole, let's give her the job. There are a lot of reasons that might be. Maybe they think, what's the worst that can happen? Or we got to try something new because what we've been doing so far hasn't been, doing, hasn't been working. Um, but what's actually found is that in those situations, women do very well. Um, so in those glass cliffs scenarios, when, if, especially like in a financial downturn, those companies that appointed a woman and they thought things couldn't get worse, well, they actually got much better because 
those companies experienced a market increase in share price. Um, so it shows that in those crazy situations when women get a really tough job and maybe the, the board thinks this is not a savable situation, so who cares if we give it to the woman? Mm-hmm. In fact, those women do incredibly well. So what that says to me is if women do well in those horrible, most stressful glass cliff scenarios, um, and in fact, there's a lot of data showing that employees would rather have a woman lead in a time of crisis for many of the reasons we just discussed, um, that what happened, maybe women should get more opportunities when things aren't a total disaster. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I guess if, if, let me just rephrase that. So my final question is, after doing all this research, so many interviews, putting this book together, what's what's the key takeaway about why women should lead, what, what's important, and how, how we can have more women in leadership positions? Well, I think it's not just why women should lead, but I think why all leaders, male and female, should try to lead more like women. I think my main takeaway is that there's no one way to be a good leader, to be a good innovator. And we need to break the stereotypes that there's just one or two ways to look and act like a leader. There's just, it's, that's doesn't, it's not accurate, it's not true. And I think the more we embrace not only diversity and leadership, but just different ways of doing things and open the door to finding these things that are our own personal superpowers. You know, for me, it's asking questions. For someone else, being an introvert might be a superpower. Um, acting vulnerable might be a superpower. You know, leading with gratitude might be a massive superpower. These things that don't seem like powers are actually powers if we can figure out how to deploy them. So I think we should have a new language around leadership, a new language about what seems like a business strength or a powerful attribute in business. And that will be a really equalizing force that will bring out the best in all of us. Well, that's great. I I, I really enjoyed the book and I I agree. There's so many takeaways there that it's not just for women or for men, it's for everybody to think about you know, these skills that, that, that drive great leadership. So thank you for writing it and uh, sharing it with us today. Thank you so much. It's such a treat to get to talk to you about it. Okay.